I think it is kind of secretly still the goal. I'm like, maybe I can use this whole singer-songwriter thing as this like roundabout way to make it to Broadway. I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Songwriter Ray Zaragoza was named one of the most politically relevant artists in her genre by Paste magazine, and for good reason. Her folk songs are powerful commentaries on feminism, race, and what change will or might look like. As a Japanese-American, Mexican, indigenous woman, Ray's lyrics and her songs like The It Girl lay bare the isolating realities of being a brown woman in a world rooted in white supremacy. Her 2020 album, Woman in Color, is a must-listen, and you can hear her incredible music live starting October 11th as she heads out on tour with Delta Ray. Check her out online at rayzaragoza.com. Welcome, Ray. Good to see you again. Hi, Nick. How are you? Good to see you. Yeah, so you and I here. saw each other probably about a year ago, I think. You did a, an event for us uh, here at Spark. We recorded something at the Hotel Cafe, wow. which I think at the time was one of the first times you'd been on stage in about six months or so, right? Do you remember? Yes. Yeah. That day was wild for me. It was the first time I had been on stage in a year. And I remember just like hearing my voice in the monitors and I didn't want to stop singing. I was like, wow, this is crazy. You had a lot of fun. We could tell it was a great afternoon, but playing Mm -hmm. in an empty venue, things are shifting a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what's been going on for you this year. Yeah, it's really just been the past couple months that touring has ramped up again. So I've been traveling again. I was just in Nashville for Americana Fest. I was in Lincoln, Nebraska for a festival. I've been just playing some tour dates here and there and about to go on tour with Delta Ray across um, the West Coast. And so it is a little odd. It just feels a little awkward in my body to be playing shows again because we took so much time off. And mm. and it's not the same as it was because we have to take so many precautions, which is great. But definitely that kind of carefree nature that I felt like I had with touring is a little different now. Like we have to be really careful, like constantly being very diligent about every single space, which has been great, but also challenging. And so touring is like a little stressful right now. But Mm -hmm. it's also really special. And being on stage is just like such magic every time. I've got a couple of years on you. So you probably don't remember when you used to be able to go to an airport and just go straight to the gate and get on an airplane. (laughs) Things have shifted so much in the last 30 years. It's quite staggering, obviously. And then with COVID, it's a really different way of traveling. Now, do you have to give yourself a ton more time to get to the airport and all that kind of stuff? LAX was wild. The last time I was there, I got there an hour and a half before my flight and I almost missed my flight. It was that crazy. How have you been spending your time? I feel like my brain is in a hundred places every day now because during COVID, I started all these new projects that I, (laughs) like now that I'm touring again, the projects are still going, but now I also have to tour or Mm. want to tour. And so, you know, I have a podcast called the Create Well Podcast where I interview other artists I'm currently writing music for a Netflix animated series. I am working on writing new music. I have a new music video that for my song, Change Your Name from Woman in Color, that 
I'm we did, we're just finishing and I'm doing this whole project around it. I've written an essay about how name changes are very significant and important to minority communities all across the Americas, like not only immigrant communities, but also indigenous communities and the black community and how just the significance of naming and name changes and what carries and what history we carry in our names. So I've read, written an essay about that. And there's also a music video to go with it for Change Your Name. So I have all these projects in the air <laughs> and I'm really excited about them. And yeah, that's what's been up. The name change project sounds yeah. fascinating. And I'd love to give you the opportunity to maybe just expand on that a little bit for us and tell us why yes. that's so important to you. I would love to. So my mom, Shirley Shuga is her birth name, Saragossa. And my mother was born in Japan and she moved to the United States in 1959 on a boat, which is what my song Change Your Name is about. It's my mother's immigration story. And throughout my life, I've really witnessed my mother's kind of identity crisis when it comes to her name. Because, you know, Shirley was given to her. She was named after Shirley Temple because her parents didn't want her to get bullied for being Shuga, having a Japanese name. Mm -hmm. But she always wanted to go by Shuga. And my dad called her that. But whenever she would try to introduce herself as Shuga, people would be like, what? And then she would say Shirley. And she moved to the United States with a stateless passport because she's not only Japanese, she's also Taiwanese. And Taiwanese people living in Japan at the time if they wanted a passport, they would actually be stateless because of all kinds of political reasons. And so my mom always had this like identity dysmorphia about who she was and what it meant to be an immigrant. And so I wanted to dig deep into that feeling and how names have such an important significance to our identities and like where they come from and what our journey is of having different names and having to assimilate into Western society by changing our names. And so I interviewed a couple different people who've had significant name changes. Like I, I interviewed an immigrant who moved here when she was a baby. She was a Vietnam War adoptee and her name was changed many times. And then also I interviewed someone who is from the Gila River Indian community and about how he changed his name back to a indigenous name and the significance of what that meant to him. And then the music video, I have included videos from people all over the world who have gone through name changes because they felt they had to fit into society and then they're all featured in the video. So yeah, that's the project. And I'm just trying to start this conversation about reclamation, but also celebration of both sides of who we are, our birth names and the names we have to this day. What a great project to be involved with and to, you know, perhaps open the doors to uh, some people who uh, might not have thought about changing their names back or uh, finding mm -hmm. their original names uh, and, yeah. and educating people like you just did with me. So uh, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to, to seeing the video and yes. hearing more about the project. You talk about your mom. You mentioned your dad as well. Was there music uh, around you when you were growing up? What's your first musical memory? My first musical memory, the, the two that come to mind would be hearing my dad play mariachi music. My dad was a trumpet player in a mariachi band. And also my dad was also on Broadway when I was a kid. When I was five years old, he, was, he played Chief Sitting Bull in Annie Get Your Gun. 
on Broadway mm-hmm. and I got to listen to all of the musical theater music from backstage in the sidelines every night because my parents didn't like babysitters. So we had to stay there every night till 11 and then go home. <laughs> and so that those are my two first experiences listening to music. So it's a lot of mariachi music and theater music. So the mariachi thing obviously is in your blood, I, I yeah. would imagine. What about Broadway? Broadway is definitely in my blood as well. <laughs> yes. My goal is always to be on Broadway. That was always my goal. And I think it is kind of secretly still the goal. I'm right. like, maybe I can use this whole singer-songwriter thing as this like roundabout way to make it to Broadway. I did like off-Broadway shows as a kid. I Singing in musical theater was always my thing. But uh, theater is hard. And I, I always felt like I couldn't hit the high notes, which is why I started writing my own music. Well, I'm like, okay, cool. I can write a song where there's no big high note at the end, like they do in Broadway shows, because I can't hit those. <laughs> Right. Yeah. You got to, you got to end up on that very, very high note. Yeah, exactly. I can't do that eight shows a week. (laughs) Well, you still got time to get to Broadway, obviously. Let's talk a little bit about the music that you owned or the music that you bought for yourself. What was the first thing you bought with your own money? Probably Avril Lavigne's Let Go. That was a great album. I had a Walkman. And I would carry that one CD around in my Walkman. And I just thought I was the coolest kid on the block. <laughs> it's hard to remember the the, the Walkman or the, the Discman, whatever it was, the, the CD yeah. version of that now. Uh, I can remember getting my first versions of those players. And, you know, if, if you actually walked, they would skip. It would if skip. Actually, <laughs> right? It was like, it was fine if you were just you sitting stay still. still. You can't, it's not a Walkman. It's more like a stay still. And then... What about live music? Obviously, you just talked about Broadway. Um, What about uh, the first concert that you went to without adult supervision? It's a great question. Really, it was going to the Hotel Cafe a lot. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. uh, Where where we both live right now. Yeah. The Hotel Cafe was always 21 and over. So maybe it was the Hotel Cafe as soon as I turned 21. But it was all LA venues. I'm trying to like even pinpoint like the venues, but I would... Honestly, some of my first concerts ever were going to open mics. Like I would just go to open mics and hear people play and then get up myself. But I feel like my first concerts were always solo singer-songwriters, open mics, coffee shops, just like things I could go to for free and just kind of sneak into and stay for a very long time. And so around Los Angeles, I used to go to these places in like North Hollywood, this place called Hallenbeck's, where you would like you could play the open mic in exchange for it, but you had to buy a sandwich. Like you would- <laughs> <laughs> buy a sandwich, they let you play. Yeah, exactly. Ah. <laughs> and I always thought that was really like hilarious. And Novel. so I would hang out there. I would like buy a sandwich and like I would stay for hours and I would just watch people and like Kulak's Woodshed. Like those were my first concerts. That was when I was like 17. And I would just sit there for hours and listen to music. If if you bought two sandwiches, were you, were you allowed to play twice? You know, I tried to, I tried that and that didn't work. They're like, sorry, no. <laughs> so how interesting that your, your first experience of live music was really watching people do what you do. And what kind of inspiration did, did you draw from, uh, from those shows? I think what I'm so grateful for having my first like real, like live music experiences, like aside from like the things I went to with family or parents be open mics was it was all very welcoming and it was very accessible so I didn't really feel this huge gap between me and the performer I felt like we I was one of them already and that 
even if I like got up there, forgot all the lyrics and totally did a terrible job, everyone was cheering and was like, great job. And so I feel like I had a lot of positive reinforcement very early on in my career. It was so much inspiration. Everyone there was just super wacky. And I was always the youngest one just tagging along, wanting to play my song that I wrote like that day. And there were even there were stand up comics. I saw people who just totally were not getting any laughs and still having a great time and doing their thing and coming back the next week. And it just to me, it just I think it showed me that the work ethic and the fact that we do this because we love it, not because we're super famous. We're playing open mics and we're having a blast. The fun is really about being there and uh, participating. And as you yeah. I haven't been to any open mics in the last couple of years, but yeah. did plenty when I first came to LA. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a grab bag, isn't it? In Los <laughs> Angeles. <laughs> it really is. I, I really, I should write like a musical about open mics like it's just the cast of characters at an open mic is so wonderful it's yeah. wild throughout like from age like eight, 17 to 20 for me I was playing open mics maybe four or five times in like a week whatever I was at bartending or waitressing I was at an open mic and I met all of my closest friends at open mics some of which I still play music with today and have gone on to be touring artists and humble beginnings but real fun <laughs> It is interesting. I've been in LA for a while, as you know, and uh, you see the amount of uh, songwriters that have come through those kind of places in yeah. Los Angeles. And, you know, you mentioned the Hotel Cafe, which is a favorite of mine. And, you yeah. know, people like Katy Perry and Sarah Bareilles, uh, people who mm-hmm. became major stars getting their their starts in these sort of small venues uh, yeah. in, in Los Angeles. And really, you know, people just sort of getting their chops down. You got to start somewhere. Yeah, it was great practice. Really good practice. What do you listen to if you feel like dancing? I feel like dancing right now. See, I roller skate. So for me, I dance on roller skate. Okay. So, so what do you right, listen to? Bruno Mars, Anderson Pack, and Skate. It's like my song right now. I love that song. But also, like last night, I went to see Lord Huron at Hollywood Forever, and I was dancing like crazy and so sometimes for me it doesn't even have to be like dance music to get really get jamming let me ex- get you to explain to people who are not in los angeles what hollywood forever is because it's just yeah. the most unique venue you'll ever go to in your life it truly is hollywood forever is a cemetery hollywood forever cemetery many like hollywood legends are buried there and uh It's a pretty spectacular venue and it's spooky for sure. But definitely hearing a band like Lord Huron play there was pretty incredible because so much of his music is about death. (laughs) Perfect place. It was really suiting. But it's, wow, it it is a spectacular venue. It really is. And I would uh, recommend if you're listening to us and want more details, just hit the Google. It's the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. It's it's a crazy place. Check it out. All right. What about if you're feeling sad or perhaps, you know, just not feeling great? What kind of music do you listen to on days like that? Elliot Smith, always. He's like my go-to whenever I'm kind of feeling like I need to come down and, and chill. I mean, the artists that cheer me up when I'm sad, like Yola, I'm like a huge Yola fan right now. She cheers me up when I'm feeling sad. Just like, just her vibes really bring me up. 
there's there's two different ways to look at it, isn't it? If you're feeling sad, you either go yeah. there with somebody like Elliot Smith, yeah, because he will take you there, yeah. or or you completely change your vibe by putting yeah. on something by someone like Yola. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Do you have a favorite music video? A lot of this depends on on your your age, because yeah. for those of us who are watching music videos on television thirty years ago, it's pretty easy because you know. Michael Jackson or Duran Duran were pounded mm. into your head, but do you say right. I mean, you make music videos? Uh, do you watch music videos? And and if so, is there one in particular that stands out to you? I love Field Medic's music videos. I don't know if you know his music, Field Medic. I, I don't. He does everything straight to tape, and he records it all in his sunroom, and it's very cool. But he makes he made this one music video for his song. Um, powerful love in his home just with a sheet up on a wall and just everyone's like dancing in front of the sheet and it's just like this party music video but you could tell that it cost them like $30 to make it and I just love music videos like that where it clearly is like a low budget but has so much and like field medic I'm so sorry if that music cost the music video cost you like way more than $30 but it was one of those videos that comes off as like so like music and music videos and being an artist is not only something that people can make with millions of dollars, you can do this in your living room. And so that music video really inspired me actually to make my music video, The It Girl, with just a green screen. Because I was like, if he can do this with a sheet, I can make a music video. <laughs> I remember uh, interviewing a former record label head many years ago who told me that they spent a million dollars making a music video for Madonna for like a prayer because they mm-hmm. flew, you know, like a hundred people to Italy yeah. or wherever they shot it. And they, a million dollars. And this is 25, 30 years ago. Yeah. And I think at that time I just made a, a, a music video for my friend Keita Klein for like 1500 bucks or something. Yeah. And I was like, how can you spend a million dollars on, on, on a video? I guess you can, if you've got money to spend, but you, yeah. you really don't have to, right? Yeah. Music videos are the one thing that really intimidate me as an artist. I feel like it's such a block for me because I'm so like, it's like, I'll never make a good music video because I can't afford it. But that's not true. You can totally make music videos with like $1,000, $1,500 or less. Like I, a lot of my music videos from Women in Color cost me a couple hundred dollars <laughs> because it was COVID and we couldn't hire anyone. It was like me and one director. But I think it's really exciting to be able to explore making music videos on a budget. <laughs> Work within how your impo- limits. How important do you do you think uh, a music video is to an independent artist these days? How, how important is it for you when you're releasing music to, to make that video? And that's a question I ask myself all the time because out of everything I do invest in my career, I would say music videos are one of the things I invest in the least in terms of like relatively where my, my money is going. Actually, when I met my boyfriend, who is a filmmaker, he was getting on me. He's like, let's make a music video. Let's make a higher budget music video. Let's do this. Like, la, la, la. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm so scared. But it's like putting it all on the line in a video. And then you're like, but what if I get no views? I think that's like a big question mark for me. I think it's something I'm still figuring out. How important are music videos? And how much should we be spending on them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, well, fortunately, living in Los Angeles, the, there was, you know, throw a stone and you, you, you hit yeah. a filmmaker. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And here I literally, I mean, like my boyfriend, he helped. Exactly. Now, I, now I've got 
free labor right here. Let's go. <laughs> how do you, how do you discover music your, yourself? Um, mm -hmm. And and do you have a, a recent musical discovery you'd like to share with us? I pay very close attention when people mention like offhand it. Th this artist I'm listening to, you should check them out. I like write them down because mm. that's usually when I find my favorite artist is when it's just some offhanded comment from some human being in the wild. Sue Lee, love her, just discovered her. She like just has like caught fire from gone viral kind of thing. She's a songwriter in Korea and she makes all of her music in her bedroom and she's so incredibly talented and Whenever I find the artist, I DM them and I end up having a conversation with them and tell them how amazing they are. But I had this conversation with Sue Lee. Um, so I love her. I think Sue Lee is like my, is like the one I'm texting everyone about recently. But also like Gang of Youths is like one of those bands that I stumbled on. Kind of just like I heard their song like at a cafe or like in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, who is this band? I must know everything about them. I'm obsessed. They're, so uh, I do know them. They're a young band out of uh, Sydney, I think, in Australia. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I'm just so fascinated by the lead singer and his lyrics and his poetry. So that's a band that I could go see them live. And I have not seen them live yet, but I cannot wait to eventually, you know, whatever they're touring the States again. And I will be front and center, like reciting every word to every song. <laughs> So Gang of Youths are pretty easy to find if anybody wants to hit the Google, as the old folks say. Or Sue Lee, there's a different, there's got to be a couple of different ways of spelling that. How can we find her Instagram, I'm sure? Yes. So find Sue Lee on Instagram. So it's S-U-L-E-E -E, and her handle is S-U-L-E-E-S-U-S-U. All right. I should be looking her up. Thank you. Do you have a... a a favorite band or artist that you love but feel that perhaps they never got the the big break that they deserved yes i do and actually i'm going to shout out a singer songwriter that i have known very well in new york city who is this like local new york legend his name is niall Connolly, and like everyone in the new york city folk music scene knows him and knows all of his music but he hasn't had his big break on the global or, you know, world stage country, like United States, like national touring kind of thing. And I just think his music's incredible. And he's like a rock star that isn't a rock star in everyone's like household. He's not a household name. So shout out to Niall Connolly. I, I think that he should have had a big break and maybe will soon, soon. <laughs> The rock He's star still awesome. waiting, waiting for his for his moment. Yes. Do you have a, a a band or an artist that you sort of keep to yourself and don't tell anybody about because it's a guilty pleasure? And if so, will you share that with us now? Yes, I have a guilty pleasure band, <laughs> and I've had this guilty pleasure band for most of my life. The Donnas. The whenever Donnas. Whenever I need like a girl power fix and i'm yeah. feeling i don't know like i just need to feel super empowered i put on the donnas and some classics i can name that like take it off and who invited you and too bad about your girl these songs i just put them on i dance around the room and no one knows until now i i don't think they 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 still exist as a band at this at this moment in time do they <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. But it's interesting that you, you talk about the Donnas because 
I remember way back when, when I was working in upstate New York in radio in, in Woodstock, that Joey Ramone bought mm -hmm. the Donners up to the to the radio station one day. Really? Because he was a huge fan and was trying to, you know, help them uh, get a break. And you, you can yeah. tell if you listen to their music that they're fans of the Ramones. So the Donners, it's totally. a, a good one. Guilty pleasure. Yeah. And, Since and, like I was 14, it's been my guilty pleasure. <laughs> you're making me feel old now, of course. So thanks. <laughs> So we're just about done. First up, thank you for, for hanging out and uh, talking to us a little bit about uh, the music that you love. And if I can end with uh, the question, how are you feeling right now? Nick, I'm feeling awesome. I'm feeling really great. I'm also feeling heavy hearted today because today is Orange Shirt Day. And Orange Shirt Day is a day that we honor the survivors and those we lost to boarding schools and residential schools, Indian boarding schools and residential schools, my great grandmother being one of these children. And so today is Orange Shirt Day. And that's also how I'm feeling. I'm feeling so good to be chatting with you, Nick. And then I'm also just feeling heavy hearted because today is Orange Shirt Day. But this really was a really wonderful way to, to spend my day chatting with you. So thank you, Nick. Yeah, well, great hanging out with you. And uh, hopefully I'll see you out there in, uh, in the real world in the not too distant future. Obviously, there is touring, there is yeah. festivals or there are festivals, but it still feels a little sort of like not quite back to uh, normal, obviously. Right. right. Yeah, we'll get there, hopefully. Thanks for hanging out with us, Ray Zaragoza. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klain. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. <laughs>